Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have forgotten how to wear trousers. Yeah, you and me both. Mm. I had to put some jeans on the other day. It was fucking horrible. It's like a prison for legs and waist. <laughs> prison for, prison legs. for yeah, legs. Absolutely that. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this week I washed all my sofa cushions, went through that epic struggle to get them all back <laughs> in their cases and then promptly threw a cup of tea all over them. That oh, is, no. that's harsh, man. You have my sympathies. I'm Jen Offord and yesterday when I was watching a video of a baby otter swimming, my baby went absolutely nuts when it started squeaking. So I think we can all agree that that is significant. She's got taste. Yeah, if your baby doesn't like otters and weasels and ferrets... We'll send her back. I'd get a maternity test, mate. It's just proof that everybody loves otters, even people who don't exist yet. I think we had a phone call last week and Mickey did an impression of an otter. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's what it was doing and it started squeaking and she was just like... Like limbs all over the Let place. Let me at it! Yeah, she's obviously realised that it was her kin. Jen, I don't want to put you under pressure while we're recording, but did you fuck an otter? <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer that question other than no, obviously. Was it as good as we all suspect it might be? <laughs> Fucking hell, this took a turn. Later on, I chat to consumer rights queen Vix Layton about what's what in the time of coronavirus, how Section 75 of the Consumer Credit Act remains the consumer's friend and the places online that can help you chase any claims. I speak to Natalie Howarth, director of Maytree, a respite centre for people who are feeling suicidal, about the impact of lockdown on the nation's mental health. Also, in Journey Off the Blocks, sport is back, sort of. And the earth stands still, but the camera sure moves about a lot as we watch Earthquake in Dunleavy Does Disaster. But first, Dash Hopes, Dicks in a Bag and Outrageous Donkeys. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, giving you all the inside information on the news. And by that we mean what's visible from the sofa. If you're one of the many people thinking maybe they've already had COVID-19, and actually, wouldn't it be handy to know so you can go and see your mum again? Well, there may be light at the end of the tunnel. It was announced last week that after a few, what I'm going to call false dawns, UK government has given approval for an antibody test, which is a reliable marker of past infection, thus hopefully indicating whether or not they may also have built up some sort of immunity to the virus. But maybe don't line up to start your conga just yet because the tunnel is actually quite long. Despite Public Health England hailing the test developed by Swiss pharmaceutical company Roche as a very positive development, it's unlikely it'll actually be available to anyone outside of the NHS or care staff anytime soon. Furthermore, Professor John Newton, National Coordinator of the UK Coronavirus Testing Programme, that's a long title, added, the extent to which the presence of antibodies indicates immunity remains unclear. Like everything else. Yes, quite. So, meanwhile, in more good news, bad news, Business Secretary Alok Sharma gave great hope to the nation on Sunday when he announced that Oxford University had confirmed a global licensing agreement with another pharmaceutical company, AstraZeneca, for a potential COVID-19 vaccine. The university is already in the early stages of trialling a vaccine that, if successful, AstraZeneca could make 30 million doses of available by September. 
and proving the government's commitment to finding a vaccination, Sharma said that it would make £84 million available for such purposes, before adding that it might not actually be possible to find a vaccination against COVID-19. To be honest, the punchline did feel like a bit of a letdown. AstraZeneca's near me. I'm wondering if I can go and get in an early queue. Just take take a foldable chair and a flask. Well, you you might literally be there forever if if, Ash, yeah. if Alex Summers press conference is anything to go by. It felt very weird to spend like a really long time telling us how much money they were spending on it, and then go, but we might not actually be able to do anything, Soz. As ever, we're recording on a Monday and later today, the government's new Brexit-led immigration bill gets its second reading in the House of Commons. The legislation looks to make real the promise of an Australian-style points-based system initially outlined by Johnson & Gove on the 2016 Leave Trail and now brought to life by Home Secretary and human smirk Priti Patel. Clearly the only promises made back in 2016 this nasty shit show is inclined to keep are the ones that hurt those deemed low-skilled workers effectively writing off carers, retail staff, local government workers and refuse collectors, despite them being revealed as part of the backbone and indeed frontline of our society. The hypocrisy extends even further, because why be a bag of dicks if you're not going to fuck everyone over, eh? Turns out those shots of Tory MPs clapping for the NHS on Thursday mean a grand total of fuck all by Monday. I'll hand over to Shadow Home Secretary Nick Thomas-Simmons talking about the NHS surcharge, a charge that international NHS staff must pay on top of taxes to use the NHS services that they are providing. He said, I think that it is totally unfair on the one hand to be saying thank you to those foreign-born workers we have in our NHS and then charging them for actually using it. The Home Secretary has actually waived it for those healthcare staff who have had their visas extended from October. She then promised to review it for other staff in the NHS. She apparently now isn't reviewing it. The Home Office Twitter account's response to criticism was predictably defensive to the point of sniping, tweeting, It's wrong to suggest the Home Secretary said there would be a formal review into this policy because all government policies are continuously kept under review. How do you spell (laughs) Right, exactly. That Patel clearly said she'd review it is, of course, neither here nor there as far as they're concerned. And yet, a Tory majority of 80 means that this bill is pretty much a shoo-in. For shame. I've noticed quite a lot of that sort of government refuting stuff on its Twitter accounts recently, and I'm pretty sure that didn't used to happen. I think that's a new thing. It's weird, isn't it? Do you think it will be departments' own social media communications, or will it be spads? I think it will be spads, because the, the vibes are not very civil servanty. They're barely civil, and certainly don't sound like they're serving the nation. Well, it does fit in with that theory that Johnson's government is trying to just bypass the media completely. It's Trumpian, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because there is lots of complaints about people asking questions at the press conferences. Uh, now, I'm supportive of people asking questions at the press conference to a certain degree, because I don't think that the BBC is necessarily that much in touch with what actual people want. I've specifically said the BBC because Kunzberg asked about a dozen times about when this was going to be over, when that was not everybody's main issue. It was clearly Mm. just what she wanted to ask. But on the other hand, if the government are choosing the questions they get asked by the people, then they're not going to be asked any difficult questions, are they? Anyway, moving on. Bad news for the Labour Party as shocking revelations about its leader, Sir Keir Starmer, make his resignation almost inevitable. What? I know. I know, as if we haven't got enough shit to deal with. 
But I'm sorry, I cannot countenance our opposition being run by a bloke who bought a field to put some donkeys in. Outrageous. For his mother. <laughs> what an absolute monster. <laughs> the Daily Mail's, I'm going to say, hit piece revealed that in the 1990s, Sakir bought land next to his childhood home so his mother, now deceased but at the time disabled, could look at some donkeys she'd rescued from the comfort of her own house. Here, you selfish twat. I don't want him to run the country. He sounds evil. There were more shocks to come as the intrepid reporters told us the land has, in the intervening years, become more valuable. What a total shit stain. How very day. After speaking to top quality sources, including a man who once spoke to a man and a man who couldn't possibly <laughs> let the absence of any truth in the story stop him from having his best guess, the Daily Mail revealed that a capitalist pig dog owned a house in London that might be worth a million pounds. Oh dear. A house in the most overpriced city on earth worth a million pounds. What sort of Labour Party is this? <laughs> the Mail went on to inform us that this one guy had heard from some other guy that he had seen a developer walking round said land. And then they found a developer who said it definitely wasn't him. But if it had been, that land would be like worth loads. I mean, can you fathom it? A man who wants to be the Prime Minister of the UK owns something that might be worth something if he decides he doesn't want it anymore. What a fucking barbarian. The piece also reminded us that Starmer liked to talk up his working class roots. The audacity of the man, failing to be born into privilege and expecting to own land to put donkeys on, <laughs> forcing hard-pressed journalists like privately educated Harry Cole to write about it, when he could be writing ecstatic praise for brave little soldier and not at all sad dog Boris Johnson, the current fiancé of Cole's ex-girlfriend, Carrie Simmons, because that's not at all weird. No, it's not. This is all totally normal. <laughs> wow. Anybody fancy some good news? Yes, please. Yeah. You'll have noticed, dear listener, that we've been trying to put a little silver lining on the fuck-off grey clouds of coronavirus, lockdown and our shit show of a government. And it, it's not always easy, I've got to be honest with you. People are still dying and the future is anyone's guess. But on that note, people have been taking a punt on what Britain will look like when all of this is over for an ONS survey. And it's pretty damn optimistic, mostly. People were asked how united slash equal slash kind they thought the UK was before the crisis and how united slash equal slash kind they thought it was going to be afterwards. Turns out there's strong evidence slash hope. People think... All this, and I'm gesturing wildly around me, will make a positive difference, with 67% saying Britain will be a kind country afterwards, compared with fewer than 40% who see it as a kind place at the moment, and 57% saying we'll be united afterwards, which more than doubles the number of people who see the country as united now. The equal bit, well, that's not so sunny, sorry, with only 22% reckoning the UK will be an equal society after the crisis. More news on what that 22% are smoking as it happens. <laughs> Jen, do you have more good news? Well, I mean, it's, it very much depends on your love of soap operas. But to be fair, for me and my maternity leave, it's great news. It was announced last week that long-running BBC soap EastEnders will resume filming by the end of June after it was shut down in March alongside all other things. The Beeb's director of content, Charlotte Moore, said the soap would work within government guidelines, good luck, <laughs> in order to ensure that staff and crew are safe and social distancing measures employed will include cast doing their own hair and makeup and I am here for this. 
The corporation said it expects to restart shooting other dramas shortly as well. And uh, also Top Gear. So, you know, with one hand they giveth. Yeah. So you may have heard a number of as yet unconfirmed stories that the BBC may be about to put an end to BBC4. But hang on, isn't this the good news section? Well, the good news is a petition has been launched to save the channel, which is absolutely one of the best ones on TV. It has gained support from presenters including Lucy Worsley, goddess of history. And yes, I know there are huge things going on in the world, so your mind might be on other stuff. But if you want to register your support for the channel that bought us Detectorists, Getting On and Only Connect and airs excellent documentaries by the metric shit tonne, and introduce the UK to Scandi drama, which arguably changed the way British police series represent women, type Save BBC4 Petition into Google and you'll find it. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week which could very easily be renamed, oh, there's a fucking surprise, (laughs) as we research the matter of lockdown sexism. Or at least we'd have liked to do that research. Any any research, really. But, well, somebody's got to look after the kids. Clearly, I am talking in generals here, given none of us actually have children, although Jen is precariously close to baby time. And yes, my choice of word there is precarious, which tells you all you need to know about me, (laughs) potentially Hannah. Still, while article submissions from male academics have increased under lockdown, women's research has plummeted. Professor James Wilsden, director of the new Research on Research Institute based at the Wellcome Trust. Research on Research sounds like a really weird form of porn. (laughs) Anyway, he worries that the coronavirus is skewing a playing field that was, as we're all aware, never level to begin with. We have to be very cautious that we are not privileging those who are able to use the coronavirus situation as time to race ahead of their peers, who are held back not by talent or aspiration, but by the need to do homeschooling and put three meals a day on the table, he says. He adds, this is also about the division between those who have caring responsibilities and those who don't, but I'd be the first to admit that women bear the brunt of the problem. And that's before we even think about single mums, who will of course be juggling even more maniacally. But does it, you know, really matter? Uh, Yeah, very much. Having articles published in academic journals is key to being promoted at many universities and is a critical measure of success in the government's research excellence framework, which distributes around £2 billion of annual funding to universities. Oh, there's a fucking surprise. Hello, Hannah here. Now, as you know, this is usually the point in the podcast where I interrupt to say something about you being able to give us some money via the magic of Patreon. But I know everyone's having to tighten their belts financially and also that there are probably some very worthy charities that you are supporting with your time and money. And so how can you continue to help us? Well, you can listen to us. If you're furloughed, and you're at home, or if you're taking your regular hour walk, why not have a route around through our back catalogue to see if there's anything you haven't listened to? Because listens equals money for us. Equally, you could spend this time spreading the news about Standard Issue. I know a lot of you already do this, but if you see anyone on Twitter asking for suggestions of what they could listen to in this time, just get in there and say Standard Issue. Thank you all for your help and support at this time. And that includes everyone who already supports us on Patreon. I'm joined on the phone by Natalie Howarth, director of Maytree, which is a respite centre for people who are feeling suicidal. Hello, Natalie. Hello, 
Thank you for chatting to me today. Some of our listeners have probably heard about Maytree. I know I have heard about Maytree before because what you do is a bit different to other charities that work around suicide. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So we are the only non-medical residential respite for people that are suicidal in the whole of the UK and as far as we know the whole of Europe. Other models are medical models and some of them are drop-in stay programs as opposed to residential non-medical. So what we provide is uh, a safe confidential space for people to come and stay four nights and five days and during that period they spend time talking, resting and reflecting. And we encourage all three of those aspects for guests to get the most out of their stay. And there's a small team that provides the support. But more importantly, we've got about 140 volunteers that help us provide the service. We're open every day of the year and people can come and stay once, um, once only. And the reason for that being that we don't want people to dependent upon us what we want is for them to use Maytree as a stepping stone and hopefully their stay with us will be you know not only therapeutic but also transformational with regards to they leave with a sense of hope and a sense that life maybe is worth living when guests come and stay they can kind of come and go as they please the website references to like there's local shops and stuff you can go to for example obviously it's not medical as you've said but I think when people think about these kinds of facilities they think of something quite different maybe a bit more enforced maybe a bit more I hate to use the expression under current circumstances but locked down I suppose what is it about your model that you think works? There's a number of things that work about our model. The one thing, and linking into your point about that guests can come and go when they stay at Maytree, is about trust. So right from the beginning, when a person contacts us, either by phone or email, we start building a relationship of trust. And we will be open and transparent and encourage the caller to be open and transparent about their feelings of suicide, their plans, their thoughts, and also what's led them to be in that place so the other thing that really works on our our model is that we don't judge we don't criticize and we don't give advice we don't say to people you should do this or you shouldn't feel like that we hear the individual really really hear hear them hear their suffering hear the place that they're in and the experience that they've been through and we hold that space for them and it sounds really simplistic but if you think about the number of people in your life that are such good listeners that they don't bring their own agenda, they don't try and fix you, they don't try and advise you, they literally sit and listen and be with you. I imagine it's quite a few people because generally human beings want to fix and make things better for other people. So the idea being that if we meet somebody halfway in that despair and in that space and just kind of go along their journey with them while they're at Maytree and encourage them to speak about their thoughts and feelings and not make a judgment, that journey hopefully will bring them to a better place where actually they go, well, life is worth maybe living and we're kind of like a stepping stone to that place. So people can refer themselves, which for many people is quite refreshing so they don't have to be within the mental health system they don't have to go and see their GP to get a referral professionals can refer their patients or clients to us and they can email if picking up the telephone is too much of a leap of faith 
And then we begin the process. So we'll have a number of telephone calls with them, building up that trust, getting to know them, and also getting to know kind of, you know, the bigger picture and what's led them to feeling suicidal and explore with them what their needs are. Point where we feel a stay is likely, then we'll offer them an assessment. It's really informal, so we'll invite them to the house if they're within London. If not, the assessment will happen over the telephone. And we just make sure that we're the right place for them and now's the right time. So as listeners of the podcast, people who listen regularly will know, I lost my brother to suicide almost 16 years ago now. And you do often sort of think, like, how much of that was a snap decision in his head? And to what extent, you know, if he'd had a bit of time to reflect or a a bit of breathing space, I guess, would he have come to a different decision? Now, obviously, these are questions that I will never know the answer to but is that sort of the idea that it just gives people that space to kind of step back absolutely most suicides are preventable not all but most like you said some suicides are you know people describe them as i never saw that coming i didn't see the signs and it was a snap decision one minute he was fine and the next minute he's gone but actually you know it's very complex behind that facade there may be somebody you know who's really really struggling but they present as happy content and life is good but yeah also you know with suicide there are a number of factors that can influence people um, and obviously there are high risk groups but for us it's about giving people the space to explore and maybe like you said kind of step back and reflect what's happened how they've reached this place and then looking forward and with that we will you know signpost or refer people on to longer term support before they leave Maitri. So that journey continues for them. Because, you know, Maitri doesn't have a magic wand. We, people don't come and stay and we go, oof, you know, in brackets, you're cured. You know, suicide isn't like that. As you know, it's kind of a battle that for some people, you know, they battle every day for the whole of their lives. And just because they come and stay at Maitri for four nights and five days doesn't mean they're miraculously uh, no longer feeling suicidal. But yeah, the idea being that if somebody can reach out and email or phone us, we will meet them halfway. And that intervention, hopefully, will prevent them from going in their lives. Like a sort of crisis point, buy you a bit of time until you can get the longer term support that you need. Yeah. Crisis for each individual is so different and so unique. And I don't want people to think, OK, I have to be a crisis point, i.e., about to end my life in order to contact Maitri. You know, suicide, uh, like mental health, you know, is kind of on a spectrum. You kind of move around it and up and down. Person of crisis might mean I've got a plan and I'm going to go ahead with this. And for another individual, a crisis might mean, well, actually, I'm having fleeting thoughts of suicide and I really don't know how to cope with them, which is then causing them a lot of, you know, fear and anxiety. So I think... One key message is your crisis is unique to you. So don't hesitate in calling Maitri just because you think, oh, there are people that are more serious or more suicidal than me. I thought it was quite interesting what it says on your website. You know, not that many people actually think, you know, I'm going to kill myself, but people tend to think more like, I don't want to be here anymore. I I want to disengage basically from my life rather than I want to end my life. Absolutely. We hear that often people, 
calling and saying, I can't cope, I don't want to be here, I can't manage, I want this to end, I want it to stop. And we are not shy in coming forward and just saying, are you feeling suicidal? And for many people, in hearing that is a relief because they're owning their actual you know, feelings and the seriousness of it. And for many people, you know, because suicide is still very taboo, sadly, within their own family and within their own community, they can't use that language. You know, they can't say, oh, I'm feeling suicidal because of the shock effect and because then everybody tends to go into rescuing and fixing mode. Whereas actually what people generally need for feeling suicidal is to be heard. Obviously, we are living in really quite strange times at the moment. Well, I guess there's sort of like a, a triple whammy, really, with, with what's going on at the moment with the coronavirus in that there are going to be a huge number of job losses over probably quite a long period, realistically. And yeah. so some pretty extreme financial hardship to come for a lot of people, unfortunately. There are going to be, I would imagine, the news coming out of other countries. And I suspect what we will see here is the breakdown of quite a lot of relationships because of the stress that's been put on them by the situation. And of course, there's bereavement as well. Unfortunately, a lot of people have been and will continue to be bereaved. And these are all things that could really, really have major impacts on, on mental health and trigger that kind of crisis point that that you guys deal with. Have you seen a big spike in calls? Surprisingly, not yet, no. And we've spoken to other charities and they haven't seen a huge spike yet. However, what we think is, is people are kind of in shock and then with that comes the kind of reality of their current situation and coming to terms with that. Um, but we're in absolutely no doubt that give it a week or two, the number of calls will start increasing, will peak and then hopefully, you know, kind of level out. But we are looking at me and the board about when we can reopen Maytree and how we're going to manage the increase, not just in calls, but also in guests, because we're in absolutely no doubt whatsoever you know, charities will be extremely busy and inundated with people who are struggling with their mental well-being. Because there's often a time lag as well, isn't there, on these things? People don't typically sort of go, oh, I've been bereaved, you know, that's the end of my world. It's sort of t things take a while to Absolutely. filter through. So yeah. probably, as you've said, the sort of stresses and strains on, on you guys and other charities will come in time and also a lot of the things like the you know relationship breakdowns potentially haven't happened yet but but will over a period of time and financial hardship as well obviously that is going to play out I suspect for really quite a long time mm -hmm. so as someone who obviously you know works in this field we've heard a lot from various politicians over the last few years I feel like mental health has almost become like quite a sexy subject people talk about it yeah. a lot a lot of talk, Jen. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I tried to access some mental health services within the NHS, and it was a piss take, for want of better words. There's the just the offering was almost non-existent. Yeah. If you want help, you basically have to go private, and private, certainly in London, I'm pretty sure everywhere, private mental health care is very expensive, prohibitively expensive for many, many people. What do you kind of see as the, the bigger picture in terms of mental health provision at the moment? Is that a very negative view or, or a realistic one? We often hear from people when they contact us that 
they can't get a GP appointment. When they do, they refer to the mental health team and they have to wait six months for an assessment. We've heard people having to wait up to two years for treatment. And the reality is that when governments continually cuts a service and expects an NHS service to manage and deal with such a crisis, and it is a crisis, when they're under-resourced is, in my opinion, absolutely ridiculous. And everybody knows that the NHS is under a lot of pressure, not just now, in the lockdown, they were under a lot of pressure prior. And if you're feeling anxious, depressed, suicidal, isolated and lonely, and you don't know how to navigate around the mental health system and how to access the mental health system, that can be really off-putting and difficult and stressful. And even if you do know how to access it, like your experience, what your expectations and hopes and needs are are generally not met because of lack of resources. So it's not just about throwing money at it. It's about, I think, especially now with the pandemic and kind of um, post-lockdown, looking at the UK and going, right, how do we assess people's mental health in relationship to this lockdown? And how do we provide adequate, good quality, quickly accessible services? in order to meet that demand. And that's, in my opinion, what the government need to be thinking about, because this isn't going to go away. You know, if anything, people's um, mental health and their well-being is going to not only get worse, but people who may feel that they're mentally quite well may come out of this with anxiety, insomnia, depression, fear, anxiety, all the rest of it. And, you know, the question I think we should be asking the government is, well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, you know, I've listed earlier three kind of like big things that can trigger a crisis point in someone's life. But also there are, with the lockdown situation, there are kind of slower burners, if you will, like isolation, loneliness, sleep deprivation, as you Uh say. I know a lot of people are not sleeping very well. They're not concentrating very well. Like the whole thing is just kind of like, it really is a a mental health disaster sort of waiting to happen. Absolutely. And, And the longer it goes on, the worse that will be. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It will be interesting to see if there is any response to that side of things because it has been so woefully neglected yeah well I think there needs to be because even you know if putting people aside let's look at the economy and you know how the impact of you know thousands if not millions of people who have you know acute stress disorder exhaustion anxiety detachment from others insomnia irritability poor concentration kind of reluctance to work that how that is going to impact on the economy when yeah. people are going off sick because of their mental health and their mental well-being with governments it always interests me because the solutions often seem so obvious in a lot of ways or or the kind of the short-term nature of of government responses you kind of think like well it's obvious like it, you know one in three people suffer from poor mental health like 
the impact of that on the economy is obvious. So if you fix that, you know, that's money, obviously, but it's an investment. You know, there is a return on that. You won't see it immediately, but obviously that's coming. And and you sort of think that about so many different things, about poverty, about, oh, I mean... I can't even, you know, like everything, basically, yeah. all of the things. And I know there's no magic money tree, except now there is, apparently. apparently. Um, <laughs> but when poor mental health affects so, so many people, it's just it's just a no-brainer, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? So you guys are actually closed at the moment. The house is closed. However, the telephone support lines up. So if anybody is feeling suicidal and they need to talk, then they can either email us, matri at matri.org.uk, if they'd prefer, and then we'll start that journey of uh, telephone befriending calls. That would be short term, so it would be for a week, and it can be every day if somebody wants to call every day. And then what we'll do at the end of that week is refer them on to longer term support to other charities that provide um, well, when lockdown wasn't happening, would provide face to face, but are now providing either online or telephone telephone support. If we have people in our lives that we're worried about at the moment, what can we do to help them? If you're concerned about somebody, and for example, they're not calling you as often, or when they do, that you feel that their mood has changed significantly. Um, and they're quite withdrawn or low or anxious, um, ask them how they're feeling. And if they say, oh, I'm fine, try and get past that, because that can be people's, you know, I often do that. You know, my mum phones, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine, mum. And that's people's natural response. Try and get past that by, you know, saying something simple like, I'm really concerned about you. Are you really fine? Try not to bring your own agenda into it and, sit and really listen to the individual listen attentively and not be thinking oh what should I say next or how should I reply or should I ask this question just be with that individual hear what they've got to say and acknowledge what they're what they're sharing with you you know if somebody's saying you know I'm not sleeping and I'm really anxious and I wish this would end but you know say I hear that I hear that you're struggling and that you're struggling to sleep and what is it you want to end you know, so just kind of when people are talking around the edges, don't be afraid just to dig a little deeper. So let's sort of end on a slightly more positive note. What can we do to help Maitri help other people now and indeed, you know, all the time? There are so many things people can do. You know, volunteering being one thing. So when we reopen, if people are excellent listeners and they care and they can empathize with people that are feeling suicidal then please jump on our website and hit i want to help and that will take you to our volunteer page people can um, donate that's always uh, deeply appreciated and valued and needed however i know there are people financially struggling and people concerned about whether they will have a job to go back to so what I don't want is people who can't comfortably afford to donate to donate. Also, when lockdown's lifted, we can all go out and do things, not me personally, because running's not my thing, but run a half a marathon, <laughs> anything kind of a challenge, challenge yourself and raise money within your community. 
And also, you know, follow us on social media. The more people that are following us on social media, the better. So we've got a Facebook, Twitter and Instagram page and get the word out there that, you know, we exist and we're here to support people and you can be involved in many different ways. And you're looking to open a house in Manchester as well. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. So obviously that's been delayed because of the lockdown and also we've put an offer in a house. So we're just waiting for planning permission meeting to go ahead, which obviously has been cancelled March and April. So once we've reopened, we're plough ahead with that. And that will mean we'll have another house being able to offer people in the north of the UK, north of England support. And we'll double our capacity because our house in London has four bedrooms. So we're hoping the one in Manchester will as well. And it will mean people that are suicidal, you know, won't have to travel all the way down or up to London. So we can find out, or listeners rather, listeners can find out more information about you guys, including where to donate to and how to volunteer on your website, which is maytree.org.uk. So where can we find you on Twitter and Instagram? Our handle is at maytreerespite. Natalie, thanks so much for talking to me and for doing what you guys are doing and i hope that you know life will get back to normal for us and for maytree very soon jen it's lovely talking to you thanks very much hello there listener jen here to ask you a little favor if i may if you're not doing so already you can follow us on all of the social medias well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspira Jen, Mickey at Mixter Noonan and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. I am joined on the phone by our go-to woman on consumer rights and all-round top bird, Fix Layton. Fix, hello. Hi. So let's start by remembering life before lockdown. Oh, God. (laughs) As a basic rule, what purchases, including events and travel, are refundable? And I'm talking pre-corona, pre-lockdown, pre-pandemic. What are our basic consumer rights? If you don't get them and they can't be delivered... You, you don't have to pay for them. That is like, that hasn't changed. So that's like written into law, that's section 75. So anything between 100 and 30 grams worth goods and services, if you don't get them and it's not your fault, you don't pay for them. Right. So that, that's just the basic rule. And it still applies. And this is the thing. And I guess one of the universal truths is there are always going to be businesses that will follow the rules to the letter and there will always be businesses that are chancing their arms. I think we're in a really unusual and unique set of circumstances here in that some of the businesses that are chancing their arms are doing it because if they don't, they won't be here on the other side because mm-hmm. nobody could ever have seen this coming. And I think this is the big thing that when you're looking at your consumer rights and when you're thinking about things like, do I want to send this thing back to 10 quid or you know, do I get a refund on this ticket that's £15? That's something to kind of bear in mind at the moment. Not only our businesses struggling to survive but they will be getting more complaints and more claims to refunds than they ever have so i guess the one big difference here is the timelines for when you're going to get your stuff and when you're going to get your money back because there are only so many people to go around and obviously a lot of people aren't working yeah because they can't afford to be paid so there's never been more claims going in 
and things like refunds and there have never been less people to do them. Travel is the big one, obviously, because nobody is allowed to travel anymore. And the way that some um, companies have dealt with this has been a bit of a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. So in terms of travel, if you can't travel, if your travel is cancelled, you should be getting your money back in 14 days and you should be entitled to get your money back. Now, what we've seen is, unfortunately, a lot of the travel agents have given it a try with offers to rebook or vouchers yes, rather than giving you your whole cold hard cash back. Now, that, in theory, is a nice idea. Like, if you are planning to travel, if you want to take the holiday when you're allowed, it might be easy to take that route because it is the path of least resistance and they are relying on this. There's been really clear guidance from the, the Foreign Commerce Office that you cannot travel, essential travel only. So anybody wanting to take the holiday are well within their rights to cancel. They can't go. They would be, you know, breaking protocols by going. Apple, who are the trade body for this, have not been brilliantly helpful because that would be your next step. If you wanted a refund and you were being given the runaround, it's people like Tui, Ryanair, Virgin, they've all been trying this route with vouchers and credit notes. Your next step, once you've exhausted that, and you would have to exhaust it, would be to go to Apple. Now, in this, in the circumstances they are, Apple are they're on the side of, of the travel agents really because you know that's an industry that needs to survive. So, with that, you need to cut to the chase and you need to use your Section seventy five rights for breach contracts. Another thing to consider with your vouchers as well, if you do want to take them, they might not be protected by Apple. Yeah. So in the event that the business goes under, if you don't know when you want to take the traveller, if it's a smaller travel agent, it's probably worth campaigning for your money back without being too pessimistic about the future. If they do go into administration, you will be at the back of the queue for this money. Yeah, and, and also I've seen that obviously at the moment you can't travel as you've pointed out and if you're getting vouchers i've seen future flights are at massively inflated prices yeah so you probably won't get like flights which is another problem so getting the money back is the best that's what you want if you've paid on it with a credit card it's nice and easy because they can do a charge back so you can register with them and they can claw the money back you know, with big purchases like this, I know credit cards aren't for everybody, but if you can have a credit card, it is really, it's so much more straightforward because they are a lot quicker at doing this. Um, I once got sold fraudulent Bon Jovi tickets that didn't exist and I got my money back for them. So, um, <laughs> Sorry. It's really annoying as well because I was going with a girl at work who I didn't like and I would have paid money to not go to this concert. And I was like, oh no, they're fake tickets. And then Barclay Card stepped in and solved a problem that I really didn't have. But, um, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> Well, we are all living on a prayer at the moment, Vic, so it seems quite relevant. Every time you have come to talk to us about consumer rights, you have told us that the the onus is on us, the consumers, to fight for those rights, to make sure those legal, those enshrined in law rights are, are enforced. Some people right now, a lot of people right now, are struggling to get out of their nighttime pyjamas and put on their daytime pyjamas. Yeah, exactly that. They rely on that. And they, they need that to be true of a lot of people because they just won't be able to cope with paying out this amount of money and survive as businesses. Because, like I said, no businesses set aside this amount of money for potentially months and months and months. So if you are going to chase it, chase the right company in terms of getting your money back. So if you've gone through a travel agent... They might not be the tour operator, in which case there's very little that they can do. So if you've gone into like a Thomas Cook shop, it might be they do operate some of their own holidays, but some they will package up from smaller other providers. So find out who that is and you need to lobby them directly because the travel agent won't be able to help you. 
And with you saying it's taken a lot longer than usual for people to get their money back because of the, the sheer volume of claims and a lot of businesses being short on staff because of illness, because of the pandemic, is it a good idea to get those claims in as early as you can? Yeah, get yourself into queue, but also manage your expectations on how long it's going to take. Uh-huh. Even the businesses that seem too big to fail, I can't have predicted this. So I know some travel companies are offering vouchers and then you can convert those vouchers at the end of July into a refund if you want to. So that's one approach that's being taken. So consider if you if you can afford to wait, consider it rather than put yourself through the stress of badgering, ringing up, kick it down the road, deal with it at another point. If you've got travel insurance, you might think this is their problem. Unfortunately, insurers will only step in if you have been refused. Yeah. So if they say they are not going to pay like comprehensively that is the only time when insurers will jump in because they want to make sure that you don't get paid twice for one claim so you have to be able to demonstrate that you have taken all the relevant steps with the travel companies to try and get your money back before they'll even entertain your claim so don't rely on your travel insurance put these calls in now send the emails fill out the forms there are loads of great services to help you like resolver is a website that helps you where you can just put in all the details and they'll just they, they've got lots of templates. They can pull some things together. You can look at um, which have got some free tools as well to sort of take some of the stress out of it because it is quite bamboozling if you haven't done it before. So it's yeah. worth looking at places like that, Money Saving Expert. They've all got things that will help you, you know, fill in the blanks. This is the number you have to call. This is what you can expect. Insurance policies, in theory, up until a few weeks ago, should cover for this. But what we're noticing now is sneaky insurers are now putting in clauses. So if you buy travel insurance now, so if you were to book your honeymoon hoping that it might go ahead in September and you bought travel insurance now, odds are there wouldn't be any cover for pandemic consequences. If you want that clause, you're probably going to have to work quite hard to find it because some insurance providers, travel insurance, have just stopped trading because it's not worth it. They've just closed their books for now. Some of them have come back with these stripped-out policies like AA, Admiral, M&S, LV. They've put in that they will not cover for corona, and a lot of them have put in they will not cover for any kind of pandemic in the future. I mean, it does it does raise a question, what the fuck are we paying them for? But that is another <laughs> podcast for another time, Vix. <laughs> yes. One thing, don't try and cancel now for things that are in the future because if those things go ahead you might not be entitled to a full refund so if you've got elements that are non-refundable it's worth waiting until they cancel on you because otherwise you might not get your your money back i would say you're probably going to get it back like the law is on your side you might have to be tenacious and you might not want to be tenacious now but it is you know it is worth it the law is on your side here there'll be rubber stamp harder regulations for companies that are flouting this they're going to take action on it. They know nobody could stand to go without however much they've spent on a holiday. So you will get it. If you are somebody who's in a position where you don't necessarily need it now, maybe take a step back and let people who do get their claims in. Let's talk about smaller purchases than a holiday or travel or hotels. What else is happening in that world, please, Vix? It's not a huge amount of movement there because, again, it's the long-distance standing rights are pretty good. On the whole, like they've been built for people to change their mind over a long period of time. They recognise that people aren't able to get to the post office, get to the post box. So I think there's going to be a lot of flexibility in that. And they will bend over backwards because these clothing companies need you to buy stuff because nobody is immune to what's happening at the moment. So your consumer rights are pretty much untainted there, to be honest. And a lot, you know, the timelines are probably going to be pretty similar to normal because. A lot of people aren't buying anything because, like you said, we're all sitting in our pyjamas all the time. 
If you are struggling to get to the post office, though, because you're ill or because you're self-isolating because a, a family member or someone you live with is ill or you're a frontline worker and you just don't have time, are there ways of sort of extending those periods? It's like, I think what every business is saying, it's the same in there because I've got some details about like what to do with like insurance policies and stuff. It's to a degree a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest piece of advice I can give to consumers with anything. Like, if you think you can't afford something, if you think your payments are going to go astray, if you can, try and make contact with the company that you're dealing with because they want to help you. Yeah. And that's always the case. Like, doing nothing is never the right answer, whether it is sorting out your bills, sorting out a refund, trying to facilitate getting something back. That's never the answer. And a lot of the things with, like, sending back on things like clothes and stuff, I don't know if you've seen, like, some of them, they just never go back into circulation. They just destroy them. So there's, like, no margin in them giving free returns. So, yeah, don't panic. There will be something you can do. Have the conversation. That is the thing. Like, always, always have the conversation. That is the one thing that will say across all of this. This has so far been much more positive than I thought it was going to be. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a delight. Thank you. That's all right. So, like, yeah, there are little money-saving things that you can do as well. So, like, car insurance. Obviously, Admiral, a few weeks ago, said they're going to rebate everybody £25 off their policy. Literally everybody who's a customer with them for car. Because there are less accidents on the road. So they are paying it forward. There aren't people out on the road getting into crashes. There's no fender benders. No one's, like, backing into their driveway. £25 actually quite small in the grand scheme of what they're saving, but quite a nice gesture. Yeah. And it's like they're one of the kind of heroes here because it's also throwing the gauntlet down for other companies to try and do the same. Mm-hmm. So it was that was a, a nice thing. There's also options for payment holidays, potentially. So if you are in dire financial need, it's worth ringing up your provider's all your insurance providers and saying, can I defer these payments? Can I take a payment holiday? Providing you haven't paid for the whole policy up front, they're probably going to be more amenable to it. Because if you paid for the policy, that would involve them giving you money back. Whereas if it's a monthly payment, they're going to be a little bit more chilled out and they can probably defer those to a longer time. They'll have cash flow then coming in in a few months. So everybody can sort of Everyone can potentially benefit from that. And that's, yeah, payment holidays is something you can have on across all sorts of things. So if you are struggling, like, list all your expenses. And like I said, don't panic. Don't get overwhelmed with information. Have a look at something like Money Saving Expert or which, And they've got tools together to just tell you how to kind of flex your money to make sure that you can survive this. All excellent information. Now, Vix, I spotted on Twitter that ahead of our chat, you were putting together a shit list and a hit list of bad (laughs) companies and good companies or bad brands and good brands. Do you want to give us your findings? Most holiday companies could be better, to be (laughs) honest, like the way they behave, which again, is not a surprise. You know, they've been like, you can't expect Ryanair who want to charge you to go to the toilet to suddenly be really, (laughs) really open to giving you your rights. But EasyJet, straight up proactive, even before the pandemic really kicked in, offered me a flexible option on a flight. This, look, you can take a flight in the next six months or you can just have your money back. Proactive. I didn't even ask for it. They just proactively came to me for it. And for that, I'm like, well yeah, done. Definitely. So there are some good players in the business that are still doing that. Trail finders on the beach as well. They've been very proactive with saying, if you want a cash refund, we will give it to you. I think where people have got the money, some shrewd businesses are recognising the value of 
doing well now in terms of what will happen later because you won't forget companies that behave like this like i never thought i'd be saying anything i'd have anything good to say about easyjet really it's very cheap it does what it needs to do the onboard bar menus are right but no <laughs> i think it's a re- it's it's cool you know it's cool admiral's rebate they didn't have to do it they've done it they've now potentially forced the hand of the whole industry to do the same it's a good thing it's a positive thing bt have given everybody unlimited data like the broadband so you get you know, as much as you want, which is great. So, again, proactive things like that. You see some companies. Now, I don't. I didn't know whether to put the companies that are offering NHS discounts on the list or not because you see the benefit for them as much as you see the benefit for the NHS workers. Yeah. And I think that's gone astray a little bit. I think some companies did do it with absolutely brilliant good intentions, but now you've got some that are like, we really want to be seen as to be doing something really nice for the NHS. This is quite easy cheap things for us to do yeah it's cynical things like weddings as well like that's another area again it would be easy to put those providers onto a a bit of a negative list but a lot of them will be small independent providers as much as it's your big day and you're really excited about it it's about negotiation Mm -hmm. with them as well so it might not be getting your money back it might be will i definitely have this cake even in two years if i want it in two years because everybody's trying to get by and that's what you're hearing from, like, all my friends who who are part of small business, who run small businesses. It means so much. If you can buy something now from a small business, it's a really nice time to, to do a nice thing. So, yeah, there's not that many on the shit list. Top shop. Top shop on the shit list. But people who weren't already shit. So. Oh, oh, I see. I <laughs> nobody, see. Is, nobody is showing their true colours here. It's, like, it's troubling to see the amount of fashion brands that are still pushing things like Klarna. Yeah, I see that on pretty much everything at the moment. I don't think you should be pushing credit options now, not when people are not able to, you know, for sure say they'll have the same job. And that, there is a lot of that, and it's dangerous. Because it, it's all pink and fluffy and nice, but it's not because it's credit, and it could damage your credit rating long term. So... Yeah, people who are pushing that option rather than switching it off, they'd be on the list. Ultimately, it's no surprises. The business you expect to behave poorly are behaving poorly. They've been some surprised in the in the hit list, but on the shit list, it's business as usual, quite literally. Business literally as usual. But yeah, you've seen some really nice things, and there are some really nice opportunities as well to do a nice thing, but also get something back. So I don't know if you saw Snag Tight, which is a really good news story. So Snag Tight do tight that because that's probably my single biggest like money bit of a purchase they're like single wear for me i don't know what i do to tight they're not robust they don't fit me i end up with the empty hammer crotch it's it's just a bad scene but snag tights have been promising me the moon on a stick forever i keep seeing their adverts on instagram it's like we fit different to other people's always thought i get around to it then a thing went up last week just saying guys we're in trouble. We can't afford to keep going at this rate. If you've ever wanted to buy a pair of snag tights, come and buy them. They did deals, so it's like you get you get money off for buying three pairs, more money off for buying four, more money off for buying five. But they also did a thing where if you're prepared to have tights in a few months' time, you could buy buy one get one free vouchers. You know, in the winter when you're going to buy your fancy snag tights, you get two for the price of one, and they two off the shelves because everybody recognised they were getting something back. They were helping a business, but it wasn't charity there's something in it for them as well and there's quite a lot of that at the moment so look for your favorite restaurants or takeaways or small businesses there are a lot of these little offers where you can pay a little bit now which will help them and get quite a lot back so it's worth looking out for those because you get to feel good because you're helping a business and they stay in business 
Vix, where can people find you on that their social media, please? I'm on at PR Vix on the Twitter. That's where I do my best work, I think. Or you can look at what is mainly just selfies of me and my cats on Instagram at VixSelfieFlushford. There's a hangover-inducing amount of cocktails on there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's turned into like some kind of pound shop Jay Gatsby. We're working through all the weird spirits <laughs> that we've been buying on holiday. It's like every day something new. Thank you so much for joining me. That was some really seriously interesting and vital information. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope it helps somebody. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we miss the crowd going wild as we discuss all things women's sport. And yes, that was a reference to sport being back, but um, without an audience. That's right, the German Bundesliga is back. Football is back. But not everyone's happy because it's quite quiet actually, guys, and we'd forgotten how much we hated VAR. They found another way of dealing with the old spectator quandary in South Korea, though, as FC Seoul got back to work. Yes, they filled a stand with sex dolls. No, not sex dolls, said the club. Premium mannequins, actually. But yes, okay, made by a supplier that also produces sex toys. I assume premium, because unlike many mannequins, I'm going to say most, actually, unless you're quite inventive, you can put your willy in them. While all of that is going on and the government meets with Premier League bosses to talk about how we can get the men back playing football again, or rather the big, big rich men in the Premier League, League Two, for example, has already decided to call it a day this season. Guess what's going on with the women's top flight? Well, it was reported last week that the Women's Super League and Championship were looking increasingly likely to abandon their seasons. I actually think we shouldn't really be talking about playing football matches at all in this country at the moment. But this does piss me off a bit and I shall tell you for why. The reason apparently is because of the prohibitive cost of coronavirus testing kits, which would eclipse most women's teams' budgets. I'm struggling a bit with this because nine of the 12 WSL teams are attached to Premier League clubs with the remaining three attached to Championship clubs and those leagues apparently there doesn't seem to be any problem regarding the affordability of implementing measures that would enable teams to play on. Okay, okay, the women's teams bring in less money than the men's teams, I hear you cry. Yes, that is right. But how will they ever even nearly achieve parity when they are forever playing second fiddle? Anyway, a couple more stories from the world of women's sport this week. First up, the Telegraph reported last week that according to the period tracking app Fitter, which we've talked about on this podcast before, you remember the ones who were working with Chelsea women female athletes have reported disruption to their menstrual cycles during lockdown and not just a small number 30 to 45 percent of users of the app said that they had experienced irregularities such as increased symptoms including heavier bleeding and more painful cramps Dr. Georgie Brunvels, lead scientist in female athlete health at Fitter Woman, told the newspaper that menstrual irregularities can be caused by a number of factors such as diet, when you eat, how much you eat, the amount of exercise you're doing, your sleep and stress. And Brunvels said athletes were particularly likely to be affected because of extreme changes to their routine, which I think is all rather fascinating and also indicative of just how little we actually know about the female body, which is not really anything new, to be fair. Meanwhile, also in the Telegraph's women's sport section is a story about the menstrual cycle affecting two-thirds of female rugby internationals. Now, I've got to say, I would ordinarily use stories from perhaps a more diverse range of sources, but obviously it's been quite challenging to find stories about sport when there is none happening. 
That said, fuck knows the tabloids still managed to find an awful lot of transfer rumour and what will become of the Premier League, guff. I don't think it's going to come as a huge surprise to our listeners that women's sport has not had the same level of coverage, but well done to the Telegraph. The women's sport team, headed up by the excellent Anna Kessel, have kept up a really good range of interesting content despite these challenges, so check them out if you haven't already. So rugby, as we've heard from the research being undertaken with Bristol City women's football team, female international rugby players have told researchers from the University of the West of Scotland that they've seen negative impacts on athletic performance due to symptoms of their menstrual cycle. Symptoms reported included those mentioned in the previous story, plus anxiety, reduced energy levels, reduced motivation and more. Now I think if you told any woman who had experienced periods about this, they would tell you, well yeah. But unbelievably slash completely believably, this is the first study of its kind to be conducted not just for female rugby players says the telegraph also for a team sport setting where previous research has focused on individual athletes submitting surveys this is important why well because team sports for one there's lots of you trying to work together with all of your players potentially experiencing symptoms at different times the study is also looking at things like whether or not being in a male dominated environment in terms of coaching and support staff might be a barrier for some female athletes in terms of getting the support they need there are some pretty obvious things in here like players reporting that they felt uncomfortable wearing light coloured shorts while on their periods and leaking which again yes pretty much anyone could tell you that but at the same time kind of depressing that these kinds of attitudes of shame towards our menstrual cycles are so pervasive that even these basically warriors feel awkward about periods you do wonder as well why on earth it has taken so so long for these issues to be discussed but well done to the university of the west of scotland for finally doing so and to the telegraph for bothering to report them that's all from me this week if you have got a hot sporty story that you'd like to share with me you can find me on twitter i am at inspiregen and i'll be back next time with more women's sport Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster shook us to our very core this week? Made us motion sick as hell this week. We watched 1974's Earthquake, written, if you can believe this, or co-written by Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather. Wow. Exactly. So you might think, how does that not measure up to the dialogue in the film I just watched? Apparently what happened... After Airport, we've had this conversation before, disaster films became very in vogue. He wrote one. He wrote a massive one, as in its scale was massive. And the studios went, nah, it's too big. And he was like, I'm not interested in changing that. So they got somebody else in to change it, kept his name on it, so it would attract people. But what remains is basically not Mario Puzo's film. It's somebody else's film. And I think that was pretty clear. (laughs) <laughs> also there's another big talent involved in this John Williams did the score for it Ooh! now he also did the score I believe for the Poseidon Adventure and a couple of other disaster he films did. but obviously really famous for his work with Spielberg so seeing both of those names might lead you to believe this was actually a good film but then seeing the name Charlton Heston to me it's the eternal question is why did people ever think he could act it's his cadence when he delivers any line at all is exactly the same it's very troy mcclure isn't it yeah but he's also not handsome and i normally wouldn't judge someone on what they look like but if they act that bad there's got to be another reason why they continue to be in work and therefore you know being handsome might be the answer to that but no he's got 
not like an old face like an old face but a face of another time so maybe he was considered you know how like patrick swayze and kurt russell have 80s face yeah yeah so maybe he has a face of another time maybe that was considered like attractive at the time when was shiny, sunburned, immobile faces considered a He looks so sunburned in this. He looks so sunburned, it's insane. <laughs> did have a strange hue about him, for sure. <laughs> so, this takes place in, you know, Earthquake Central, Los Angeles. It's got some other, what I would describe as half-decent actors in it, um, but God knows what they're doing in this. Uh, it starts with Ava Gardner waking up like she's in a Tennessee Williams play. She gets up, she gets angry, she starts drinking. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's ready for lockdown, I'm going to say, Ava Gardner, <laughs> in this. She's his wife. She has to be made to be the worst possible individual on earth in order to justify the fact that he's also nobbing another woman, which is a very 70s trick. Try and make him Jack the Lad, so blokes like him, but then they have to wonder whether women won't like him so they have to give him a terrible wife so that we think he deserves better than her he absolutely doesn't they live in a house full of chandeliers which i can't (laughs) help but notice is probably not great for being in an earthquake he is it never really seems that clear what he is he used to be like a pro footballer but now he works in something to do with house building and engine or engineering he's an engineer he's an engineer yeah I was but, confused about the football. But it seems segue, like there's though. backstory that they don't ever really kind of explain. But he's now working for his father-in-law. I mean, he must be doing quite well for himself. He has a car phone, which is literally a phone in the car, like an old <laughs> Bakelite phone that he picks up and uh, and drives along with. I don't think it's connected to anything. I think it's no. just in there. And then an earthquake happens, and we follow a number of stories, all of which aren't interesting. And then the earthquake happens and it's not really interesting. And then it ends and it's not really interesting. But it is very, very bad. I think probably best summed up by the George Kennedy scene at the start in which he appears to be chasing Art Garfunkel. (laughs) (laughs) In a car chase that's very reminiscent of Police Squad. It's the titles to Police Squad. You just you're seeing it from the lights, the police lights point of view. Because <laughs> there's obviously a number of things that happen that lead you to think that something's going to happen. The first one of which is a guy dies in a lift full of water, uh, a dam, and the second one is that some guy, some scientists in a hole, the hole gets filled in with soil because of the earthquake, and there's some startled sheep. And I'm starting to wish I'd put startled sheep as one of my bingo boxes because they are big on the startled sheep. It's weird as well, though, because sheep genuinely sort of look startled most of the time anyway. So it doesn't seem a great judge of when an yeah. earthquake small, or something's going to happen. small brains, don't they? they? Said... They're not very clever sheep. No. So they're probably quite easily startled is yeah. the point I'm driving at here. I actually think they were startled by some of that excruciating dialogue that happens in that scene. Then we cut to a guy who's there having a look to see what's happened at the dam. And they send a diver down, but the guy's only wearing a snorkel, which made me laugh and then we cut to a bar there's a really weird plot about like a, an evil Knievel type stunt driver who doesn't like evil Knievel he thinks he's better than him mm-hmm. um, and his sort of best friend agent whatever you want to call it and his sister who is played by Victoria Principal um, yeah. who went on to be in Dallas obviously Walter Matow is in this he's the best thing in it Hannah dressed like what a funkadelic yeah. I'm just sitting at a bar 
And I kept thinking, why is that character in it so much, considering he's just, like, just a guy being drunk at a bar? But then it occurred to me it was Walter Matthau, and therefore they were obviously trying to get as much as they could out of him. Makes you wonder why they didn't actually give him a different part, like a proper part. (laughs) I think he inspired the John Hurd casting in Sharknado. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, we have a couple of Cassandras running around. So the first thing they want to do is evacuate the city. And it seems that everybody in this is from the Dominic Cummings school of how to deal with the disaster. (laughs) They're all just happy to let people die. They would rather let people die than have the problem of how they were going to feed those people when they evacuate them. Or let people die rather than risk the fact that they might be wrong and feel a bit embarrassed. Yeah. I'm going to say one thing about, one positive thing about Charlton Heston's character, whose name I can't even be bothered to remember... Mickey probably does because she's good at Stuart. Like that. He's Stuart, called Stuart. Right. Is that he has a really nice corduroy jacket. In fact, I had a corduroy jacket <laughs> like that in the 90s that I bought in a charity shop and I completely loved. It's so gratuitously sexist, this film. That it in really it, is. he's having an affair, but the woman he's having the affair with actually takes the blame for the affair for him so he doesn't have to feel bad about having an affair. She seduced him, Hannah. She is. Very young compared to She him is well. 19 years younger than him. There's a character who works in the supermarket who starts... <laughs> yeah, which this is, is one Cody, of the weirdest plot lines. He starts <laughs> off looking like Sean Penn in Carlito's way and then he goes home and puts like a John Denver wig on and then he goes out again and becomes a terrible human being and attempts to rape Priscilla Presley. You've missed out in murdering three men, but oh, yes, yeah. that as well. You're murdering three men and then attempting to rape Priscilla Presley. So, not great. But the, I'd the like, can, I, can I just add to that? Um, I liked George Kennedy's kind of synopsis of that situation, which is, you know, just earthquakes sometimes bring out the worst in a man. <laughs> yeah. Also, also, he's, someone's just tried to rape her. What does he do? Oh, look, here's a dog. Yes. Here's a small puppy. puppy. He just distracts her with a puppy and she goes, oh, lovely. Lovely job. (laughs) What I would say is that puppy is the best thing in this. By a country mile. a nice puppy. It is a nice puppy. Does it survive, by the way? It does. I think it does. I'm assuming it survives. I can't remember. I mean, I'm I'm guessing so. A lovely moment in which the guy who's going to do the stunts, I think he was called... Miles. Miles, yes. He's, he's going to do the stunts and he tries to do the first stunt and he doesn't go all the way over the loop and he lands on his balls which kind of reminds me of that thing <laughs> in Idiocracy ow my balls and, they, and his mate says to him what happened there then and it seemed pretty fucking clear he didn't go the full way over the loop but he landed on his balls I don't think that needed an explanation even I understood what happened there but this film is really badly made not just like bad but it's really badly made it has some like terrible quick cuts and scenes that are really small and then a really sort of noticeable quick cut to something else that makes you think that that scene could have come out and it probably should have because this film is fucking two hours long yeah and it is rubbish i mean like again i'm happy to wait 52 minutes to cut to the chase of a film if there's actually anything worth watching in the first 52 minutes and there absolutely wasn't i don't i didn't care about anyone and then the earthquake really kicks off. And I have to say, I felt proper travel sick at the end because rather than actually spend money on stunts, they do this thing either where they move the camera and so it looks like it's shaking or they do this warping thing with the film to make it look like it's shaking. And both of those 
don't look like an earthquake, but did me make me feel a bit pukey. My favourite bit it. in terms of the effects was um, when she... I don't know her name. The one he's the one he's nobbing, who isn't his wife. She's like a vision in pink, skipping around a hill somewhere for reasons that I don't know. I think she's trying to find her son. Anyway, the earthquake kicks off, and the houses start rolling down the hill. And those houses are literally made out of cardboard boxes, mm. like you can see. Yeah, like you know those sort of corrugated cardboard brown yeah. cardboard boxes. Mm-hmm. You can literally see like the little squiggly bit on it and I was just like that's the worst thing I've seen when the shop's facades fall down they fall down like they do in Blazing Saddles where they have that fight <laughs> and, and then you see there's nothing behind them they almost like flip up when they fall over um, okay okay my favourite effect then is when there's a lift full of people and oh, it is I've overpacked you can say it yeah okay and it is absolutely overpacked and something goes wrong with the lift shaft and they all plummet to their death and then they just there's just a photo of some blood <laughs> Yeah, just oh, a bit of blood yes, splatter. That's it. That. It's so funny. It's, it's like a cartoon of blood. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's hilarious. Animated blood. Um, oh, fuck, I'd forgotten about that. There's like the people acting in it. Obviously, they've been told act like there's been an earthquake. And I would have thought in Hollywood you could find some people who'd had some experience of being in an earthquake because there was an earthquake in 1971 in Los Angeles. So you would think that some people would have some experience. What they all do is what I think a child would do. Like, there's a lot of running and spinning. Just like, (laughs) I mean, I wish I could do it here to show it for you, running and spinning. But then there's also a scene where people clearly are made to look like they're falling out of a a window. But they don't. They actively jump. You see them jump. And also explaining the plot, which is still going on at this point. And I don't think the plot needs explaining at this point. There's a bit before the lift falls where the woman says, they threw me out of the elevator and then I heard everybody screaming. And you're like, we literally just saw that, love. (laughs) I don't know why you were explaining this to me. The guy that drowns in the doorway, I don't know what's in there. What's in, is it a lift as well? I don't, the man at the dam who Oh yeah, the first first man who dies. Yeah, Yeah, the first man that dies. When he comes out of the door, when the door is opened and his body like sort of, floods out of it with all the water you can visibly see him exhale <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's visible to the naked eye that he is very much alive so basically these people are cut these people being led by lawn green are caught at the top of the building people are being lowered down on this firehose. I mean, to be honest, the size of his kipper tie in that, he could have lowered him down on that, to be honest. And there's so much screaming going on. And it reminds me of, um, have you ever seen The Streetcar Named Desire with Marlon Brando and um, Vivian Lee? Right, there's this theory that the reason that works as well as it does as a film, apart from the fact that Streetcar Named Desire is a really great play, that, that there's a theory that the reason it works is because Brando and other characters in it are doing Stanislavski method acting, you know, the live it, the, the, the inhabit the role. And Vivian Lee is doing that old style of acting that, oh my goodness, like hold your hand to your really theatrical style of acting. And therefore the fact that she represents the old world and he represents the new world, like that clash is heightened by their acting styles. So mm-hmm. she looks quite hammy and he looks like he's going to fucking kill anyone who comes near him. Yeah, and everyone in this film is doing the Vivian Lee style of "Oh my word!" The screaming is just awful. It's just really 
infantile acting. It's like if you said to a child, look scared, and they went, ah, like that. <laughs> Jen, I think something's frightened Hannah. <laughs> when they then all go to a uh, an underground car park, which I'm going to question the the logic of that and then I felt I was proved right because it turned out to be a really bad choice when they're down there and they get aftershocks people and I'm going to say people because I'm not going to call them actors people stand up in order to fall over you see them do it you see them go all right I'm going to need to stand up now in order to fall over and the other favorite thing that happened in this and go back to the effects is that they're brick towers come down in actual towers not in individual bricks yeah (laughs) you can just see they're made of polystyrene it's so funny he decides heston decides to go and save everyone and at first he doesn't even acknowledge his wife while she's there and then in the end he decides to save her uh, or try and save her and not run off with his new uh, girlfriend and he dies and i wrote i'm glad he's dead in really big letters (laughs) on my notepad (laughs) The end. Yeah, they're all um, really unpleasant characters, actually. Yeah. There's not really anyone in it who you're like, oh, yeah, you're all right. They're they're mostly cunts. I think Miles is all right. Maybe Sam, his agent, friend. Well, the evil can evil people. Evil can evil people. Yeah, they're all right. They're not that bad. I suppose... The, maybe the no the copper's not really that nice is he it's the worst policing ever he's just had a bad day so he just allows the fight to happen behind him until he gets bored and then puts someone through a wall yeah i mean it was it was shit and it wasn't even shit in a way that i could laugh at it like uh, avalanche was it made me there want to watch a, avalanche again yeah there were a couple of lines like the whole um some earthquakes just bring out the worst in some men which i absolutely <laughs> pissed myself laughing at <laughs> Actually, every scene that George Kennedy in, was in was amazing. I enjoyed those. But yeah, it's just, it's so shoddy. You're laughing at it rather than being yeah. able to laugh with it. Should we tally? Should we go to the list? I think, I think I've, I've got, got nine. Three. I think I've got three. I don't think I can legitimately have this disaster saved our relationship because they both died. So, um... <laughs> Five, maybe. Six, maybe. Okay, do you want to go first, Jen? Okay, I've got... Does weather geek count? Like a sort of geologist type chap. Geology's not weather, is it? Mm, I would sort of put them all in the same thing. But okay, I don't have that then. Um, don't use the lifts. Yes. Yeah. For several reasons. I feel like you should have that about four different times in this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there there's some fires and shit. So yeah, Kenny Small burning. And yeah, that's it, I think. Mick? Well, I've got, I think I've got nine. Uh, pre-disaster shag. Pet survives carnage. But I have to find my son. Nature, you cruel mistress. Mid-disaster punch-up. Farewell, major landmark. Bridge collapse. Uh, hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Hello again, George Kennedy. As seen in airport. And there is no brilliant plan that can't be fucked up with the addition of people. Wow. Which is pretty much every plan that they have. (laughs) I've got thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Spend any time in the company of Charlton Heston. Um, (laughs) So many traffic jams. If only we hadn't bought substandard kit. He does spend a lot of time saying that, oh, we should have built them better. We should have done that. Oh, he's disgusted by his profession, I think he says at one point. Cassandra ignored. In fact, there's a couple of Cassandras ignored in this. Local radio report that makes... uh, that Sean Penn from Carlito's Way turned into John Denver. 
uh, <laughs> and Screaming Cowardice, which there is an awful lot of. So I've got six, and Mickey ran away with that one. Mm. I did. That was the only good thing for me about watching that film. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.